Michael Ruff has found balance and order in his life. And why wouldn't he? Living on the beautiful Hawaiian island of Kauai for over 20 years, the talented songwriter, producer, and keyboardist has remained connected to the music world. Through his career, his migration from East Coast to West and finally to Hawaii has left a trail of amazing musical success that's allowed him to tour with Kenny Loggins, India Ari, David Sanborn, Natalie Cole, and Bonnie Raitt. He's had the good fortune of also being musical director for Ricky Lee Jones, Randy Brecker, Gino Vanelli, B.B. Winans, Jose Feliciano, and many more. As a producer and engineer, Michael has always focused on what matters, the integrity of the song and artist. As a songwriter, he's been associated with numerous Grammy nominations and has won multiple Nahuku Hanohano Awards, known otherwise as the Hawaiian Grammy. But Michael is a diverse musician. His new solo album, Acoustic Trios, reveals his love for jazz and allows him to show us all his brilliant keyboard chops. Inside Music Cast welcomes the very talented and tanned Michael Ruff. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Howdy, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> you know, we're, we're attempting to do something here on Inside Music Cast we haven't done yet before uh, via Skype. We have you in Hawaii, where it's almost 9 o'clock there in the morning, as the, you know, the time we're recording this. Uh, Eddie and I are here in Indianapolis, where it's uh, about 3 p.m., and we also have our joining us today is uh, Uwe Reith, our Inside Music Cast correspondent from uh, Germany, where it's 9 o'clock in the evening. So we're spanning <laughs> about 12 hours here. And uh, Uwe, I believe you've uh, met Michael in Germany. So Uwe, say hello. Uh, hello, Michael. Hello, guys. It's a great pleasure for me to be off the party. It's a great moment for me. <laughs> hey, listen, Michael, you've been hanging uh, your hat in Hawaii there for, for quite a while. Gee whiz, you've been surfing there for around 20 years, I think. And uh, and we all know that uh, we're everyone um, understands that our listeners and our audience, they're, they're very astute as to your career, your music, and uh, they are very aware that you've toured the world and recorded and with everyone. But I actually want to start with a, a little question of... You know, you actually do a lot of work there in Hawaii. Tell us a little bit about the, the music that you do there in Hawaii, and uh, and what's the music scene like? Well, you know, Hawaii has its own music business mm-hmm. that's completely, uh, completely separate and unique from the you know what the mainland music business and what we know as the music business. Mm-hmm. Hawaii has its own uh, group of artists and writers, and and definitely its own folk music. Mm-hmm. That completely supports itself right here. They're not dependent on the music business in any way, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. There's lots of artists here, really good ones, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, describe the artistry, the, the, the music. I mean, granted, uh, give, give us a feel because I am totally unaware of, of like I said, the music scene there. And uh, uh, are you involved in a lot of writing and producing uh, for entertainment, for shows? And give, give us a little bit of snapshot of the breadth of what your work is there. You know, uh, there's most people think of Hawaiian music and they, they think of the tourists, <laughs> you know, the pretty uh, slack key guitar yeah. playing in the background and right. hula and things like that. But it goes so much deeper than that. The hula is a, a genuine cultural folk music where, where they dance the lyrics to the songs. Uh-huh. And I can't really think of another place in the world, maybe Africa, where they actually do that. Uh-huh. They're dancing the lyrics to the songs. Mm-hmm. So it actually goes back very deep, and that's the way they keep their culture and their language and their heritage alive. Yeah. So there's traditional Hawaiian music, and then there's slack key music, which is kind of a very beautiful guitar. A slack key means it's tuned down to an open tuning. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Right. Uh, there's that, and then there's a, a whole mishmash of uh, reggae and uh, country and 
kind of hip hop meets Hawaiian music. So they're you know sure. they're doing all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, sounds cool. So you know, I, let's go back a little bit. You were born in, in Salt Lake City, right? And and I think you spent your school years in in Boston and I think in Connecticut. And and were very young when you began playing piano. And you know, were people labeling you as a, as a prodigy at that point? Because obviously you were very talented. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I was. I was. I was. Uh, I was born in Salt Lake City. That's where my dad was from. Uh-huh. And, um, then I grew up in Connecticut and Boston and uh, and in New York and played in blues bands and stuff like that. When I was growing up in high school, so that's where I got my start. Then I eventually moved out to LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, before I moved to LA, I, I moved to Woodstock, New York. Uh-huh. So I lived in Woodstock and I lived in New York City for a while. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sh- shared a loft and uh, with you know eight hundred other starving young musicians. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up out west. I kind of wish I had stayed east, but it worked yeah. out okay. Yeah, tell tell us a little about about um, you know it on your site. It does give a history of. Of how you grew up and that type of thing, but uh, but really early, I'd like to know a little bit of you know you were really um, uh, immersed into the blues scene, you know, and you were you know pretty much a teenager, and you know although it, it does write that you played with you know James Cotton and John Lee Hooker, at that time you know what um, you know tell us a little bit about that field because you were pretty much touring with a lot of uh, blues musicians. Yeah, I was that was the best education on so many levels. Yeah. Uh, I was just a kid, so I was playing organ and Fender Rhodes and and uh, piano with with the blues artists that would come through the East Coast because we had a little band that would would back them up. You know, they they couldn't afford to bring their whole band up, or if they did, it was like you know eight guys in a minivan, and you know the bottles would fall out when they opened the doors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We got to play with all those great people, and, and I love the blues. That's how I grew up playing the blues. I'm not really a jazz musician. You know, I've come to play jazz later on, but yeah, really, I love the blues. You never get tired of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, while, while you were there in New York, uh, now this is not, not necessarily a, a blues artist, but you hooked up with Vandy or, or with uh, Randy Van Warmer, and, of course, he's, he's really noted for his hit. Back then, it was uh, the, the slow ballad, Just When I Needed You Most. Was this during that time that you were in the, into the blues scene a lot or when you hooked up with Randy? Um, no, the blues scene was more before I moved to New York. Okay, and then, I got gotcha. you. Um, I moved to Woodstock in, uh, gosh, I can't remember the year, late yeah. 70s. Right. And... Uh, I met him in Woodstock mm-hmm. at Bearsville Recording Studio. I got you. This is where Todd Rundgren was living up there. And yeah. You know, the guys from Orleans, you know that band Orleans? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Even Robbie Dupre is up there in that area, I believe. Robbie, yep. Yeah. So I moved to Woodstock, and, and that's where I, I met him. And uh, we did a record together with uh, Chris Parker and Tony Levin on bass and this great guitarist named Shane Fontaine. Mm-hmm. I got to play on the record. I was completely inexperienced, but I'm jumping back again a little bit. I'm going back to you know some of the early years and, and like say when you were in high school and you were probably I'm sure you're really immersed in a lot of music. But I'm curious to know you know from an influential standpoint, what were you listening to at that time? I mean, what was really what were you absorbing and taking in and mm-hmm. uh, you know around that time that influenced maybe the way you you, you ended up playing? You know, when I was a kid, my my uncle. Uh, he was a guitarist and a teacher in Boston. He played me Beatles records and Bill Evans records and Oscar Peterson records and uh, Vince Guaraldi, the guy from Peanuts. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. right. So I would have to say those are the initial influences. And Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. was, you know, those were the days when they would play 
Stevie Wonder and, and Donny Hathaway and James Taylor on the radio. Yeah, exactly. So the radio actually had some great music coming out of it, Earth, Wind, and Fire and Ohio Players and sure. all these great. So mm-hmm. that, that was what I was listening to. Yeah. Bill and Preston, people that were on the radio. Mm-hmm. That was the 70s. It was a great, great time to listen to music. Wasn't it, though? Uwe over there in Germany is standing by. He's got a question for you. Yeah, Michael. Um, do you come from a musical family? Have your parents been musicians as well? And do you play any other instruments? Um, my family's, they're musical. They're not professional, but they're, they're all very musical. Everyone's got a great voice. But none of them do it professionally. I think they wish they, d- they did, some of them. But uh, what was the other question? Oh, I play a little bit of every instrument, but nothing well. I'm just learning to play piano. That seems to be ah. <laughs> so That's amazing. <laughs> that's what it feels it's, like. It's, it, I mean, it seems that you are the guy that doesn't have to practice. <laughs> uh, it's not so much that I don't have to practice, it's that I'm too lazy and I never do. And I never have. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, I mean, I know, and I say that kind of sadly, because if I had been a person who studied and practiced, I, I'm sure I would be a much better musician. But... Uh, I ha- it's like an athlete that has a natural ability but doesn't learn the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. You know, they can take it so far, they can have their own thing, but it, you can't can only go so far with it. Yeah. So I really wish I had studied more when I when I lived with my uncle in Boston. I went to the New England Conservatory. I studied with a guy named Rand Blake, mm-hmm. who's a jazz piano player. But I never kept up the lessons. I wish I had. Now I feel like I'm just learning how to play because I. I go to gigs, I do jazz gigs, and I'm, I'm playing more through changes and, and uh, really not taking it so seriously and trying to figure out some stuff that I never got a chance to learn when I was young mm-hmm. or took time to learn when I was young. It's really fun. Well, hey, guys, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's take a quick break. And I want to go back to Michael's 2006 release called Everything and hear a funky little number called Chili Pepper Chicken. Oh, 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 
A second ago, we were talking about how you jumped around from the East Coast to the West Coast and eventually got yourself out to Hawaii. But tell me about the your LA experience. And, and I don't think you said a moment ago that you remembered why you moved out to LA or what brought you there. But but can you recollect? And was there something that that you can remember that did bring you out to that that area? I was playing with a group from Woodstock and New York City. We were in the Virgin Islands for five or six months playing with this band. Um, in a house band it was a hotel that was owned by the people that owned studio 54 you know the disco oh yeah 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 so it was kind of like where they put their cocaine money anyway this this hotel was <laughs> you know we were there five nights a week and and uh the drummer was the original drummer from saturday night live his name was Dawood shaw hmm. and uh he had this gig out in la with a band that was the beckmeyer brothers they had a, a band called Blue Moon way back when. It was Freddie Beckmeyer and Steve Beckmeyer and Neil Larson. Anyway, they were going to make a couple of records and, and produce some records for some other artists. And Neil Larson wasn't able to do it. So Dawood said, why don't you come out to L.A. and play on these records? And that was my kind of like my little career shot to move to L.A. So mm-hmm. I went out with him and... Uh, moved to a small apartment in Van Nuys and played on a couple of records with with him and this guy, the bass player, Freddie Beckmeyer. And then I started meeting people and playing local gigs and uh, ended up getting a gig with Jose Feliciano. Yeah, yeah. And that gave me some more exposure and I started getting more recording artist gigs from then on. And that was like 1980, maybe. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how fast uh, did you get in contact and hook up with um, members of the music scene over there, like people from Rufus Alumni or Yellow Jackets or Andre Crouch? Right. You know, there used to be more places to play live in L.A. I don't know how it is now, but there was a couple of places where uh, there were jam nights or there was a house band. And um, I was playing with with some of the guys from Rufus at a, on the Tuesday nights at a place called The Flying Jib. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the really great musicians and artists would come down there and hang out and jam. And, and the core band was basically Rufus. It was Andre Fisher, mm-hmm. Bobby Watson, Tony Maiden, uh, <laughs> a guy named Warnell Jones, Max Ann Lewis was singing, um, Shaka was a regular in there, and uh, wow. Gerald Albright, Michael Pollock, all these great musicians. Sure. So... I think I got more work out of playing there on Tuesday nights than anything. <laughs> there was a few different clubs. You know where musicians would hang out? Baked Potato is still there. It was oh, this yeah, right. Blah Blah, which was a singer-songwriter kind of place. Uh-huh. For me, personally, the, the Flying Jib, I started writing songs because the band was so good and I wanted to play these songs with the the band. They would inspire me to write songs. So that's where I started writing. Yeah. 
Hey, no, you you mentioned a little while ago, Michael, about um, your connection with Jose Feliciano, and you mentioned him briefly. And you know what? As a kid, I I, I can really remember as raised up in a Latino home, uh, all the Spanish music that was always playing. And I tell you something, we had Jose Feliciano on the stereo almost all the time. And uh, but you actually were able to, to you were actually called upon to tour with him. Uh, explain that connection. That's ama- he's amazing. I, I don't remember how I got that gig. I, <laughs> uh, because. I don't remember what I did last week. Never mind. In the early days, but my wife just nodded her head. She loves right. Jose. Feliciano. <laughs> she's she's from Mexico, so yeah, he's great. He's an amazing musician, amazing musician. Just totally incredible, and he tours. You know, like four hundred days a year. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he's still on the road these days, and uh, my goodness, it's, uh, neat music. You know. Yeah, he's fantastic. He can play and sing anything. Really incredible. You know, something else I was thinking about around that same time, I, we're talking about the L.A., your L.A. years. You connected uh, with uh, Ricky Lee Jones, and I think you toured on her Pirates tour. Is that right? Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's one of my – that really is one of my favorite albums, and it contains, the, you know, obviously a lot of piano parts. And how did you acclimate yourself to her music, you know, thinking back to that time? <laughs> Put on your, put on your uh, suit of armor. Yeah. Put your head down and go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was she difficult to work with, or was she a pleasure to work with? Uh, both. Yeah. She, you know, in retrospect, I learned the most playing on her gig. I really? think a lot of musicians would tell you that too. Uh-huh. Because it was completely had to be completely intuitive, and personally, she's just such a shy person. She has no idea how to deal with people. So, <laughs> if you're in the you know, you're in the hot seat all the time. And when you're young, you want to keep your gig. So, you know, you're totally intimidated. And she has a way of using that intimidation to just scare the crap out of everybody. <laughs> hey, listen, I want to ask you uh, um, about one of my favorite artists. When I first listened to the, a record called Piano in the Dark, I fell in love with Brenda Russell. And um, and you've, you've connected with her in the past. You, you mentioned Shaka Khan and, uh, and how you've worked as musical director, even with David Sanborn and, and Lionel Richie. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your you know, the, what goes into being a musical director for, for these people that really tour an awful lot. It depends on the artist and the kind of tour they want to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those artists, like Shaka, she's a little more musical. She doesn't care so much about everything being exactly as it is on the record. Yeah. And a guy like Lionel Richie wants it to sound exactly like it is on the record, including the solos. Okay. You know, and the the, the actual parts and the, the keyboard sounds and things like that. So whatever it takes, usually I would hire another keyboard player who could play, <laughs> play the parts that sound the same as the record and play them exactly the same each mm-hmm. time. Because mm-hmm. that's something that I'm really terrible at. And then I would play the more, you know, feel-oriented piano, organ kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and basically, you just put the right musicians, so you have a combination of people that work well together and, and have a good attitude and support the artist and, you know, really make the tour great musically. And then some artists, they want, you know, they want certain a certain look, so they would audition people that, that look a certain way, you know. Sometimes the playing would suffer for the way people look, but you know, <laughs> part of that's part of it too. Yeah. Well, Eddie was talking about you know uh, 
your role as a music director and, and for live performances, but I, I wanted to talk to you also. You know, you, I think maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I think you're probably a little better known as a as a live touring performer. But you've also done a fair share of your you know studio work and and uh, tell me about the. I don't know, just from your standpoint, from your point of view and your experiences, uh, tell me about any nuances or differences in being a session guy, you know, compared to a touring guy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really consider myself a studio musician, or at least not in the early part of my career. Uh-huh. So I wasn't a good reader, so I didn't get the reading gigs. And uh, and like I said, I'm not one of those people who plays it sort of safe and exactly the same each time. Right. I wasn't very consistent. That doesn't make for a good studio musician. Mm-hmm. I was more of a touring, you know, kind of a field player. Yeah. I have to say now with the internet and having a studio at home, um, I've done much more session work over the internet in the past few years than I ever did when I was in L.A. Neat. Yeah. So I've gotten really good at laying, laying in parts and finding the right sounds. and so, so Sure. Kind of. And then, you know, live is live. you got to play well and have energy and look good and be consistent and not hit bad notes and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Studio musicians, I mean, the really good ones, you know, you got to just respect those guys. They read anything. They can play anything. Guys like Greg Fillingane yeah. and, and Robbie Buchanan and, oh, my God. And they just play the right part, and it sits in there, and they know how to record. And that's man, it's such an art, and they're so good at it. Yeah. yeah. But was there a moment when you tried to push this career as a session player, or did you never do that? Well, when I lived in L.A., of course, I always wanted to get called for sessions, but mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't really push for it. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the sessions I did were with the artists that I was working with. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, uh-huh. And then I tried a few sessions with people who wanted the more, gosh, how do I explain this? Uh, just a musician who doesn't say his opinion as much, just kind of shows up and does a great job and smiles and goes home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm a little more opinionated. I was a little more of a personality and more of an artist. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, don't, I didn't know how to be a, a good supporting studio musician in those days. Mm-hmm. So. Are those people who hire you um, looking for a keyboardist uh, who has a great live feeling? Some, yeah. It depends on the recording and the artist, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got a call to play more feel-oriented stuff, clavinet parts or piano solos or organ parts, things okay. like that. Mm-hmm. They were more just just basic raw feel. Yeah, exactly. They're more like accent parts that you can really just do a great feel. Yeah, like you're saying, yeah. You're, I understand what you're saying. But it's changed because now you can go in and play all kinds of random stuff for half an hour and then they just cut and paste until they have whatever song they're looking for. That's true. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's completely changed. Then yeah. you know. Well, I want to I want to touch on your discography for a second, and it's pretty deep. But let's talk about your solo work. And it your, is. <laughs> what's that? I haven't done much, you know. I mean, I I really don't consider myself having much of a career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, the, the, I think your, your your fans wouldn't see it that way. <laughs> I'm really happy to have fans. I, mean, I have no idea. You know, you're isolated in Hawaii, man, that you don't know how many people are admiring your work. You're just there stuck on an island, and, and everybody's like, hey, you, Michael, honestly, the truth is, we've been asking, uh, people have been asking us to get you on the show for around two or three years oh, that's, already. That's true. Uh, right, Rick? Yeah. 
and and finally, uh, and then Uwe came on as a correspondent, and he was your biggest advocate. He he said, "When are we going to get?" I mean, if you were to see Uwe's, uh, how should I say, literature and the articles and a bunch of knowledge of uh, documents that he's got, magazines with you all over it. I mean, you, he, Uwe, you just sent me a few uh, articles. I think it was this past week. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And I also said, when you get Michael Ruff, I pass out. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, you well, have. I'm honored. Thank you. I'm I'm really honored. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I'm so thankful that they have any fans anywhere. I mean, really. Yeah. That's not been the focus of my my life. You know? Yes, right. It's, most artists are most are focused on themselves. Yeah. Um, and their career mm -hmm. part of themselves, and I, I'm really not mainly because I'm just lazy, and then also <laughs> uh, I just kind of pay attention to the day to day things first. Yeah. No. Going back to what I was going to talk to you about here a second ago, we, I wanted to touch on your on your uh, solo work and your Warner Brothers debut album. I think it was cut back in 1984 called Once in a Lifetime. And it, man, that included some some pretty great players. You had you know Andre Fisher, you know from Rufus. You had Steve Gadd, Abe Laboreal Sr., Dean Parks, uh, Paulino DaCosta, Br uh, Brenda Russell, you know Jimmy Haslip, Sanborn, Larry Williams, and so on. I mean, tell me. On an album like that, your first solo album, having that caliber of talent, what does a first solo album like that teach you? I mean, how did that, you know, how did that, I mean. <laughs> how little you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think you know it all. I mean, yeah. I was 24 years old. Yeah. That was a dream, too. You know, Tommy, I met Tommy LaPuma at that club, The Flying Jib. Mm -hmm. uh, I had done some demos with Brenda Russell, and he had produced a record for her just recently. So she brought him to the club. And I didn't really know who Tommy LaPuma was. He'd come up after the show, and I played this song called Once in a Lifetime, which was just burning with that band. I mean, it's all these great singers. Yeah. And he goes, hey, man, hey, you're, you're amazing. I, I want to sign you to Warner Brothers, man. I want to take you in the studio. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Call me when you're not drunk, you know. He wasn't <laughs> drunk. I didn't know him. He's this little guy, and he's just kind of all excited, and I didn't take it too seriously. I didn't know who he was, and. Cause man, you gotta call me, you know. And he gives me his card from Warner Brothers, and sure enough, I mean, <laughs> I looked him up and asked around, and they were like, "That's Tommy LaPuma, man. That's Tommy LaPuma. He produced George Benson's Breezing album. You're nuts. <laughs> call him up." So, and he said, "Who do you want to play with?" And I, of course, I was like, "Steve Gadd, Abel Boreal." <laughs> yeah, you know. So and I, I had been playing with Jimmy Haslip. Um, at that club and some other clubs and and so it was dream come true call whoever you want call your friends you know big budget for those days god I wish I had a budget like that now to make a record I could make six so so it was Tommy basically that hooked you up or, or you both worked together in in, uh, in securing all these great musicians right he brought you know it was old school it was like uh, the days when you just you hired a studio you didn't think about the price and you right. hired the musicians and they just send you a bill and you go out to dinner and it goes on the record budget of course i didn't know that till afterwards but you know so that was just old school and tommy lapuma was one of those producers who who just you need something you just call somebody right, right? yeah and let's uh, take another time out for a second and, and listen to a beautiful track by michael this is a track called more than you'll ever know
Hey, we're very curious. Have you ever been asked to join? I mean, probably a lot of times, but have you to join a band uh, as a, as a steady member, as a permanent member? Has it ever happened? No. And how many times? No, really? No, I never have. Holy cow! Wow. Uh, it would have been cool. It would have been journey Chicago. <laughs> you know, it's. I don't know. Well, you you mentioned those great bands that are out there, right? You know these bands, Journey, Chicago. Those guys have been on the road for for so many years. Now, granted, Steve Perry is gone, but give us your opinion as to you know these acts that are just the longevity of these guys, and they're getting back together. How many of these guys stop by uh, Hawaii over there and do the casinos or the clubs over there? Do you guys get to see a lot of these acts over there? Well, you know, Trius and Bowden, he's been with Chicago, the drummer. He's been with them for years. He. Yeah. He had a place over here on Kauai for the last few years. Mm-hmm. He he moved last year, but so and we're good friends. We were friends from L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I keep in close touch with him, and he they're still on the road. They're out there all the time, you know. I just saw Chicago two weeks ago, and uh, and Tris is not back there on drums right now. I, I'm not sure what's happened to Tris. The last two shows I've seen, he hasn't been with them. So oh, I, I heard he had some health issues. So I'm not sure if if that still persists. So. He yeah. had cancer, had lung cancer. Okay. Oh, is that what it was? See, I didn't know yeah, that. But he's, he cleared it. He beat it. 
And he's been back on the road, so I don't know, maybe he had something else going on. Yeah. Isn't Lou Pardini's with them now, right? Lou Pardini's with them, and I'm not sure who the drummer is, but uh, Lou took uh, Bill Champlin's place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I could never, you know, go on the road like that and have a family at the same time. Yeah, it'd be hard. It doesn't matter how much it pays. I right. Mean, there's just no substitution for being there all the time with your kids and stuff. Right. Really, I'd rather be a mailman because, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and even a mailman, you got to be out of the house for five, six hours. So, exactly. yeah. I'm the most blessed person on the planet. I have a question uh, concerning the song "More Than You'll Ever Know," and this is one of my favorite songs. I think you wrote it for your sister Shia, and this song has been released on at least four or five of your albums. What's the reason behind it? <laughs> I'm gonna keep putting it out till it's a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Persistence pays off, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I I would love to see somebody really, really nail that one, like uh, you know Mariah Carey or somebody who could sell a lot of records. That yeah. would just be a dream too for me. Yeah, it's a good it's song. A song. Let's go back to those bands we're talking about. The reason they have that longevity is because they have great songs. Right, the Doobie Brothers and you know, Brian Adams and Journey and Chicago. They have great songs that, that just last and last. And people always want to hear those. That's the kind of artist you want to be, you know. Well, speaking of other great bands, Eddie and I and, and Uwe are big fans of Toto. And um, this past week marked the anniversary of uh, the passing of Jeff Percaro, their drummer. And uh, is, it, is it true that Jeff was suggested for um, speaking in melodies? And did you ever have a chance to play or perform with him? We played together on many occasions. Yeah, like, you know, at the Big Potato, and and I played with him on a couple of Kenny Loggins things. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, he was suggested for speaking in melodies. That uh -huh. was, he was going to be the drummer. Yeah. But I had been playing with, with Per Lindvall and Lars Danielsen and these uh, Danish and Swedish musicians. And we had kind of had a really tight thing, so. That was, that's a good story right there. Yeah. Can I go on with this? Yes, please. please. Yeah, uh, God, it was 1991, was it? 92? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we had scheduled a recording in, in uh, Ocean Way. It was George Massenberg and Claire Marlowe and, and Doug Sachs for, for uh, Sheffield Lab. It's like a audiophile yeah. label. And uh, we had two bands. We had the Swedish band, and then we also had the local band, which was Lee Sklar and... and um, Luis Conte and uh, what's the other percussionist name? Lenny Castro, mm -hmm. um, Michael Fisher, Michael Shapiro. And um, Jeff was going to play with that rhythm section and ended up being John Robinson. But people came down in the studio and they were hearing Per Lindvall play. And uh, I don't know if you know about him, but he's, he's one of the most gifted drummers I've ever worked with. And he has this natural thing, very similar to what Jeff had. Interesting. It was just no matter what he played, it felt right, and he never played too much, and he could had chops galore, but he never really show. You know, it wasn't a show off. Right, right. It's just you know, it's just he's just meant to be a drummer. Jeff was that kind of guy. Yep. And that kind of drummer, and Linval is also like that. So people were stopping by the studio and and coming in the control room, and then calling their friends and going, "You got to come down here. This is really weird. I thought it was Jeff playing. I heard the speakers, and we came down the hall. And you know how you hear a good music at the end of the hall, and you come down to see who it is when you're in a recording studio. Uh huh. I mean, there must have been 
20, 30, 50 people calling their friends and going, you got to hear this. And they, they thought it was Jeff and it was Pear and people were in tears because they had this, it was eerie. Jeff had just passed away and, and yeah. we all felt it, you know. So it was kind of cool. I yeah. Because there's a real intangible thing that, that a musician uh, has. That's that's thing that we consider a gift that we don't even possess. Right. Yeah, that's, you know? that's that's interesting. You know, that that comparison between Pear and, and Jeff, and I didn't, you know, I never. You're, I think you're they're right. really similar. I mean, they, they are play the same, of course, but it's a natural feeling that they have. I was thinking about some of Pear's recordings, and yeah, I've never seen him perform in person or live, but yeah, I can I can see how you could compare them. Yeah, there's some good YouTube stuff up from our last tour. We just finished a tour. Uh huh. Linval and um, James Genus on bass from New York, Saturday Night Live, and uh-huh. he played with Michael Brecker for years and. Fantastic bass player and James Hera on guitar. So look up the YouTube from 2010. We'll do that. And also my daughter Olivia, who's 18, uh-huh. singing lead, killing it. Well, I've heard her voice. We'll get to that just in just a little bit. Yeah. Hey, uh, by the way, Michael, I think it's time to wake up there in Hawaii. <laughs> you know Man, what? I've been up since six, and uh, you know, we took the kids to school. I gave the dog a bath and uh, trimmed the palm trees and did a workout. Yeah, but we're here. Check my email. Made breakfast and lunches for everybody. Our Skype connection must be pretty good because we're hearing the roosters crowing back here. <laughs> this is Kauai, man. This is rooster. Island. I love it. They're everywhere. Hey, Michael, I wanted to talk to you. When you tour, when you tour, can you explain what what how you like to set up your your keyboard keyboard setup a little bit? Do, how does it vary from gig to gig, and or does that also uh, does it vary from musician to musician? But how do you like to set up uh, your keyboards, and what do you play? Past couple of years, I've been using a I always use a Yamaha 88 key, mm-hmm. a P P150, P250, or a, I've been P200. Yep, I did that for years. Really, and then um, recently I use a CP300. Yeah, because it, it's just got a great piano sound, and that's where I'm at most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not really much of a multi-keyboard guy. Sometimes I have a Hammond or a Hammond module. Right. Um, and then I, I've been bringing this. Roland old Roland SH101. Yeah. It's like a little, you know, like a mini Moog. Yeah, exactly. For solo and bass and, you know, yeah, annoying got, 70s sounds. Oh, it's got, it's, <laughs> a, it's got some grace. It's got some grace, great uh, Moog light uh, uh, bass, bass sounds you can get really funky with, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I love it because I'm a 70s Stevie kind of guy. So yeah. it annoys the tour manager, my guy from. Denmark, he calls it the wee wee. <laughs> I don't care, I like it. He goes, just don't play it on every song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, hey, you know, on several on several occasions, we also can you know see, uh, key, you know, occasionally we see keyboarders with really huge arsenals and keyboards everywhere. Remember those Steve Porcaro days? Remember that? And good fun. Uh, <laughs> very good fun. Um, so, you, so you're more of a vintage guy. Do you, do you have a lot of vintage keyboards in your arsenal too, or not really? Um. I got a few of them. I have a Honer clavinet. Yeah. D6 and a 1973 Fender Rhodes. Yeah. And the SH101 and a, a Hammond. And um, I don't know. Those are the, that's all the stuff we used to carry around. Exactly. That stuff never dies, does it? To every gig. Yeah. Exactly. No, it doesn't. And it sounds better than everything. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fun to have all those keyboards. There's been a few tours, you know, where I had all kinds of stuff and. In the 80s, you know, it was rack mount was the thing. So you'd have this giant refrigerator rack with all the 
<laughs> the roll and in the the Yamaha synths in it. Yeah, all the TR. Remember when all the DX? Yeah, the, right, right, right. The TR modules. They were like you buy them by you buy them by the by the dozen and put them in a big rack. And I'm like, it was all about yeah, racks right. and it was it was bell sounds at the same time. <laughs> okay, okay, is right. Then then everybody dishes all that stuff and you go back to what the Wurlitzer and the Rhodes. <laughs> exactly. Uwe, you hey, have. Michael, I have seen your band twice in 1989 in Germany and in 2009. And I remember um, in 1989, you were playing some complete different versions of uh, Walking with Somebody and Dedication with different arrangements compared to the, your debut album. Do you hmm. often change the arrangements during a tour? Every single gig, we change the arrangement. Sure, <laughs> 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 <Don't> answer that. <laughs> yeah, we just take a jazz R&B approach to uh, a song, you know, uh -huh. pop yeah. song or ballad or whatever, and just let the musicians play, and it just goes wherever it goes. I think that's what makes it fun every time. Oh, that's great. It's fun for us, and the audience knows that something new is happening, and sometimes yeah. it's amazing, and sometimes it falls on its face, but it's an, at least it's a ride, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's great. I remember the concert in 2009, and is it true that... Um, the tracks of your gospel album, the Waters of Love album, uh, had been almost canceled. Um, how did you save um, the, the tracks or what did happen? Oh, gosh, yeah, what a ride. We, we recorded two nights. The second night had some horrible digital problems, so it was uh -huh. unusable. Uh, so we used the first night, but then I, I had it at home on a hard drive, and the hard drive crashed, and the computer crashed. So I had to have this stuff recovered. You know how that is. Mm -hmm. I didn't have it backed up yet. Whoa. So we almost lost it. But but uh, we used stuff in the first night and fixed it up. It took three years for me to get it done between life and uh, kids and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Hey, listen, uh -huh. speaking about your, your, your gospel music, you, uh, you work um, quite hard with uh, – in composing and arranging and producing music for, for worship in churches and that type of thing. Um, how long have you been doing this? A long time? Uh, do you, are you musical director at your church where you're at? Or give us a little bit of the, the other side of the fence of the music that some people may not be familiar with. Um, well, I mean, I've been, a, I've been a believer in Jesus Christ now for about 12 years. So as my heart and my life turned around, my view towards the music turned around. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think if you give God credit for what belongs to him, then all music is praise music. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now all these old songs that I used to sing that were love songs, mm -hmm. uh, they're more universal love songs and they're more song, you know, love songs to God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not about a particular woman or trying to get over or whatever it was. I mean, I never wrote those kind of songs anyway, but right. still, you know, music speaks from the heart, so... If I have a heart for God, then the music is going to turn that way. Yeah, I write I write a lot of songs that are that are just uh, the congregation likes to sing mm -hmm. in church music because music really opens you up so you can get in a place of worship where it's not about yourself and it's not about a show or about the singer or anything. It's just about using the music to open up your heart. Mm -hmm. So I write a few a few of those kind of songs. I don't play in church very much. We go to a really nice church. It's in a tent mm -hmm. on a hill. And <laughs> oh, uh, there's a worship leader there, and they play all those songs, you know, Chris Tomlin songs and sure. stuff like that. But right. I just go with my kids and my wife, and, and 
we just go to church and hear the word. I don't really play much there. Wow, I, I want- do that more when I travel. I do seminars and um, worship concerts and church concerts with visiting, you know, like visiting choirs and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. Hey, I wanted to switch gears and talk about uh, your new project, the Acoustic Trios album, and it's you know it's it's obviously very different from your prior work. And I mean, this this album is pretty much straightforward jazz. And tell us a little bit about the inspiration for dive, diving into this jazz element. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for giving me like the best review I ever had ever, you guys. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I, when we play local gigs around here. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Just we, I play with a jazz trio on Saturday nights at a hotel, uh-huh. and uh, you know you have to just play for the enjoyment of those songs, standards and original songs. So I basically this record was just I just wanted to take my friends from Kauai that I play with every week in the studio because they never get a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. So we just went in and just had no agenda at all. We just played whatever songs we felt like playing and. The drummer is a good friend of mine. He's the hardest working guy that I know. He works a construction job five days a week and plays music five nights a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd never been in the studio before. Really? Wow. Tony Ricarte. And he's just got this great... He's from East L.A. originally. He's been out here 35 years on Kauai. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, he just loves to play. He doesn't care. He's got a great attitude. You know, he's just not overly musically ambitious about it. He just wants it to feel good. So we just based the whole thing around him and his feel. He's got this good old school feel. And, uh, that's awesome. you know, it was really for my friends. But it came out good, so we printed it out. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Amazing album. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to play acoustic piano, too. I'd like to, I should have been doing that more, I think, over the years. Mm-hmm. Playing more solos and stuff like that. So right. I'm going to branch out, maybe go do something in New York with, with uh, Genus on upright bass and some drummer yet unknown. <laughs> Your daughter Olivia Michael joined you on tour and records for several years. And are there any efforts to force her musical career? And will she re- release a full-length solo album? I'm sure she will. And I don't think there's any way we're going to stop her musical career. It seems to be like snowballing already. Right. She hmm. just moved to New York City last week, actually, uh-huh. well, wow. the first week of August, and she's already had like three sessions and. People offering her, you know, to join bands and write together. And she writes really good songs. And obviously, she sings great. She'd been singing since she was a little kid, you know. And now I have my youngest daughter, Celia. She's six, and she's like, she's the same thing. She's singing all the time. She's really good at it. Yes, I saw this on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the kids, they come along and they sing. And, you know, it's great yeah. to see Olivia starting to branch out. She'd never played with musicians on that level before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn and Genus, you know, so we were kind of kicking her butt a little bit. <laughs> but she, she stepped up, man. She did amazing. Great on the R&B stuff and, and great on the jazz stuff, too. Yeah. She's got a great feel. Nice, nice vocal cool. feel. She's a natural. She yeah. is a natural. And she has a voice that just sounds like her own, which is something you can't learn as an artist. Mm-hmm. You have it or you don't. India Ari said that Olivia had that, you know, that it, that you, you can't learn it, can't earn it. You either have it or you don't have it. You know. Yeah, you're right. And uh, since you know we're talking about Olivia, uh, we're on that topic. Let's let's stop for a second and check out a track from the Acoustic Trio's record uh, featuring her vocals, and this is a song called, uh, and this is a song called "Cry on My Shoulder." Mm-hmm. 
hard sometimes And things seem larger than they are But if you need to tell someone That's what I'm here for Cry on my shoulder I'll help you rise above Cry on my shoulder Regarding this album, Acoustic Trios, um, how long has it been out, and where, if you know, fans are interested in, in picking that up, where can they uh, where can they pick that up? Uh, I laugh when you say, "How long has it been out?" Because basically, <laughs> like, I have some in the garage. I, have some in the <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think that rooster back there so has a copy of it. If that's out, then I guess it's still out. Um, we had them on tour. And it's uh, you know it's a different world now. They're on the internet at Fat Tuesday Records. Okay. Com. That's the my buddy Ron who I record with, and he's if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be recording at all. Yeah. He just offers his time. So. Um, 
Well, keep in keep in mind that our listener audience, uh, our audience is is really very global. We have our friends in Europe and Australia and and everywhere, yeah. and, and these these guys are really. Uh, they're really hungry for your type of music. They really are. And so there, there is definitely an appetite. And, and you know what? It's funny because, um, you know, we, we talked to several guests in the past and that are sort of West Coast and different types of, of, of vibes. But, you know, sometimes they're very surprised to hear that when we remind them that, hey, look, you've got a fan base out there. You, they want your music. They really are hungry for it. So that's why, why we ask about this because there's people out there the, all over the world that are going to be li- looking at uh, this and saying, hey, look, I want that. You know, I really need to listen to that. So, um, it, like yeah. I said, well, the, you know, the Internet is amazing that way, especially for independent artists. Mm-hmm. People can find you from anywhere and they can get your music anywhere, mm-hmm. either buying it or for free. And, and uh, yeah, I'm realizing that I have a fan base all over the place. I have a huge fan base in the Philippines. I mean, really? like millions and millions. Holy Like cow. a real, real fan base. I've never played over there, but... Interesting. Wow. Particularly this song, More Than You'll Ever Know. It gets recorded by all kinds of people, and they just mm-hmm. they love it. Millions of hits on YouTube. and Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And I'd love to go play in Australia and Japan. I know I have a lot of fans in Japan. Mm-hmm. I've got a question, Michael. We never really quite touched on this, but you know, you've you've gone from, of course, musicians starting out, and you migrated into jazz, and then you did the the the, the session, the touring. Tell us a little bit about your your writing. I mean, how? Uh, uh, I know we're about ready to to finish up here, but are you continuing to write right now for uh, people, or or just uh, writing for yourself? I writing for myself. It, it just happens when it happens. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I'll sit at the piano, I'll get an idea, and there it is. Yeah. So it's a strictly inspired thing. And then writing for artists, if they need a certain kind of a song, you right. know, then we'll get together and go over ideas, trying to find a story that works and write a song around it. Yeah. You know, cool. people that I produce, we usually end up writing stuff together or I, I get inspired to write songs for them. Yeah. Well, and wrapping up here, give us an idea of uh, what's next for you, what you're working on now, what's coming up, you know, like projects that you'll be working on for the rest of the year and maybe into 2011. Do you have uh, some things lined up? No, well, I have some new songs, actually, some ideas for new songs I'm really excited about developing. I've been sitting on a worship record, which is, you know, congregational worship songs. Mm-hmm. I've been sitting on that for years, and I really would like to finish it. So I'm just going to ask my friends to play on it for free because I don't have any budget. There you go. I've uh, got a couple of tunes with India Auri that I'm really excited about. And I uh, uh, just spoke to Kenny Loggins about maybe writing something with him. Very uh, neat. You know, I'd really like to see some artists come over here to Hawaii and just sit around for a couple of weeks and write songs and record kind of unplugged and trying to develop that idea. Because people love to come over here and record. Of course they do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got a couple cool things in, in uh, London with Martin Tereffi, who's a great producer mm-hmm. and writer. I really admire him a lot. Good friend. He's Swedish, actually. And I don't know. We'll see what God throws my way, which is amazing to me because I certainly don't go looking for it. And, you know, the, just the fact that I even work is, is just incredible to me. I don't yeah, know. I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, so, Michael, thanks so much for joining us, spending time with us here on Inside Music Cast. I know we've, uh, you've made probably a lot of our fans happy because Eddie wasn't lying a while ago and uh, he said that your name has popped up probably more than just about anybody. I think your name and Richard Page and a couple of others just keep popping up. And uh, wow. so this has fulfilled, uh, uh, you know, something something good for us here at Inside Music Cast and our fans. Yeah. Well, let me just say thank you. I mean, I really appreciate your guys' support and the energy and the time and the effort you put in. And, you know, 
I just want to say thanks. I really, really do appreciate it. Well, you're so, welcome. I don't, Let's, yes, I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's definitely stay in touch, and we'll, you know, if uh, if you got an, if you have something else happening in the next year or so, and we it, it, we have a chance to talk about it, we can certainly have you back on. Well, uh, I have you guys linked on my website, and I actually do keep up with that now. So, yeah, you know, I'll keep putting out some good music, and you'll be able to see what I'm doing by looking up there once in a while. So. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks again, and uh, good luck for the rest of the year, and thanks for chatting with us here on Inside Music Cast. And also, thank you. Th- uh, yeah. Also, I want to thank uh, Uwe out there in Germany for joining us today too. Thank you, Uwe. Yeah, Uwe, we're going to see you, see you next year. We got a tour. Yeah, I hope up. so. Um, and uh, thank you very much. And uh, it was a great honor and a great pleasure. Well, it's all mine. All mine. Thank you, guys. All we'll right, see you, bye. Take care, Michael. Bye. Bye, bye. Special thanks to Michael Ruff for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson. Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Uwe Reith. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>